Hello everybody, welcome to the Boxing Science Podcast and in this episode I'm going to be answering your questions on a range of different subjects from talking about dips for boxing, home workouts, whether that's with limited equipment or no equipment, and also talking about the top five exercises for amateur boxing. So if you're not subscribed yet, hit the subscribe button so you don't miss out on any future content. Let's kick on at this episode's questions. So I've got a question from Hector Perez. Hello, I follow you from Mexico. I hope you can answer some questions. The first one that is asked is, are dips useful for boxing? I've seen Mayweather, Tiafimo Lopez and Andre Ward, among others, using them. Are they better than push-ups or the floor press? So, dips for boxing. This is something that I've covered quite often on the YouTube channel and on Instagram. And particularly when I put it on Instagram, it gets a bit of backlash on, you know, all these champions do dips, I do dips, I find them great and everything like that. The main reason why I don't do dips for boxing is because it's very strenuous on the anterior shoulder joint. So when you get into them deeper ranges, what you'll see is the internal rotation of the humeral head. And this gets a lot of tension, a lot of strain through boxing activity anyway, through the stance and guard and also through the bent arm shots. So a lot of boxers end up getting shoulder injuries and there's been a range of different shoulder surgeries done with boxers. So the last thing that I want to do, added strain onto this shoulder joint, have this internal rotation in the cumul head. So what we look to do with our pressing exercises is to look to optimize the load whilst keeping the shoulders in a neutral position. So this is why we do press-ups, why we do floor press and why we do rack press instead of doing a full range bench press. And we're talking about the bench press and press ups and floor press. This is getting to this end range here. If we get to the total end range, this is what we're likely to see. If we go into dip, you're going to really increase that internal rotation and cumulative head, that strain across that shoulder joint. The main argument that I see on social media is, look, the champions have done it. Why can't everybody else do it? Look at these champions here that have been mentioned. We've got Floyd Mayweather. Floyd Mayweather, after his career, had shoulder surgery and he says that he was injured for 10 years. So this is a, something that he had to manage. Andre Ward, well-publicized shoulder injury and had shoulder surgery that put him out for two years and he had to box for like six to eight years with almost being a one-handed fighter. And then Teofimo Lopez has had surgery on his hand which might not be due to the shoulder but we see like kind of restrictions in that shoulder and the upper limb have an effect on like hand, wrist and elbow injuries. Also with Teofimo Lopez, when he's doing his S&C and doing his boxing, it's taped up, it's taped up all around his shoulders. You can see that it's internally rotated through the shoulder. He's probably had to manage some shoulder injuries during his career so far. Might, if he carries on, end up having shoulder surgeries himself. Even though these fighters have been really successful, they've ended up having these injuries. So it's really important to protect the shoulder joint in the SNC and in your physical preparation because it goes through so much hammer during boxing. So that's the reason why we don't use dips. So the second question also from Hector Perez is if in a cycle would you first work onto increasing basic strength then another cycle for speed. Periodization and planning your programming in boxing is really important to optimize adaptation, optimize recovery, and also to peak your physical performance for fight night. There's a lot of different periodization models out there. We look to do block periodization just because we want to 
optimized adaptation. There's a lot of mixed research around periodization in more controllable sports and boxing. So I think that doing block periodization works for us and we want to build the foundations first of general movement prep, strength foundations, maximum strength, and then that feeds into speed work. And the reason why we do that is because we want to increase strength first and then transferring them actions, them high force, low velocity actions into high velocity, low force actions. Also, there's a terminology called residual gains. This is how many days you can spend away from training this particular adaptation without training it. For example, maximum strength is around about 30 days, whereas like speed is only five days. So we want to train maximum strength like in the early stages of training camp, and then we can afford to kind of take it out of the program around about three or four weeks out. We can top up them levels by obviously doing our strength speed and speed strength training. But the main thing is, is to take in that speed as we get closer towards a fight. Because we know that we need to keep training it to be able to keep topping them up, keep improving and taking that into the fight night. And we know that if we stop strength training earlier on, we're not gonna lose that going into the fight. Doing heavy strength training during intense periods of boxing where we're increasing our sparring rounds may have an effect on our boxing performance. So we look to try and take the load down, increase the force, the speed, and also making it from a general to a specific point of view. So doing more punch specific exercises, whether that's a landmine punch throw or the medicine ball punch throw, making sure that we're linking everything together and transitioning the gains in maximum strength into speed and into a punch specific action. So that's how we plan out our program going from a 12-week block, going from strength foundations, maximum strength, strength speed, and taking speed all the way through to finite. Okay, a question from Vasne Palmer. What should I practice boxing at home? I go to a boxing gym, but I want to practice at home too. At home and away from boxing, the main thing to do is shadow boxing. So if you've got no equipment, a very obvious thing to do is do shadow boxing, but make sure that you're theming this to make sure that you're working on your technique, your speed, your timing, but also creating some fitness adaptations too. So spending a three minute round just doing aimless shadow boxing, you're not gonna really improve, but you can do stuff like footwork drills to warm up, some fantastic footwork drills that we did with Callum Beardo a couple of years ago, incorporating this into your warm up, and then going into three minute shadow boxing rounds where you're theming what you're doing. So maybe like doing double phase attacks, doing certain combinations, working off your jab and then going into power shots. Range of different things that you can do. Here's some that we provided during lockdown. Then also theming your shadow boxing to certain intervals to work on fitness adaptations. So you can go for power endurance where you're working in 10 second bursts with 20 seconds recovery. Or you can work on red zone adaptations where you're looking uh, to batter style. So 20 seconds on. 10 seconds off, so 20 seconds high intensity and then dropping 10 seconds, low intensity moving, using the footwork, working off your jab, and this will help increase heart rate for red zone adaptations during boxing. And this is a fantastic bridge between you training at home and then going into your boxing gym workouts. So I've got a question here regarding the amateur boxing strength conditioning program. We released this last month. It's had a fantastic response. It's been accessed all over the world. I really can't believe how, how popular it has actually been. It's basically transferring the boxing science training methods 
into amateur boxing gyms that might be limited on time, facility, working with large groups. And we create like different circuits, working on strength, plyometrics and fitness and integrating this into your boxing sessions. So if this is of interest to you, if you're an amateur boxer or amateur boxing coach, check out the link in description where you can try out the boxing science training methods in your amateur boxing gym. So this question is, I bought the amateur boxing SNC program and I saw great warm-ups with plyometrics. Can I skip the jump rope if I do the warm-up and plyometrics? So I'd say to do the skipping still, whether that's in between your mobility warm-up or in the plyometrics or before you even do the mobility. So you're looking to do a ramp warm-up. So that's raise, activate, mobilize, and potentiate. So your raise can be the skipping. Activate and mobilize is the dynamic stretches that we do. And potentiating is with the plyometrics as we go into the boxing workout. Skipping is still vital for amateur boxers because the submaximal actions and extensive plyometrics to then provide a foundation for intensive plyometrics such as your pogos, your partner-assisted pogos, agility ladder work and everything like that. So it's really vital to keep skipping in. So do like maybe two, three minute rounds before you go into your mobility warm-up and then do your plyometrics after that. Fantastic question here from Sesh1113. How do you determine what area of conditioning, that's peripheral, central adaptations or muscle buffing adaptations, to focus for an athlete. Do you determine this through testing? Are there certain characteristics that you look for in an athlete? I think this person watches a lot of boxing science. Very good question here. As an example, take a fighter who can sustain a high pace but can't recover if they push beyond that pace. Compared to an athlete that is very good at hard explosive bursts with a lot of inactivity between. This is a fantastic question, really well put. How do we determine this at boxing science? We do three physiological assessments, mainly two at the moment. We do a lactate profile, which is a little bit like boxing, which is three minutes on, one minute off. We start around about 10 kilometers an hour. After each interval, we take a blood sample to analyze lactate accumulation. We look at the heart rate, and then after each interval, we increase it by one. What this is analyzing is an athlete's ability to work at high intensities and how they respond when the intensities increase. And from this, we can determine what kind of athlete are they? Are they more endurance based? Are they got a balanced profile? Are they more explosive and unable to deal with high amounts of acidosis? We also do this with our 30 second max out sprints, where we're looking to do only two repetitions and looking how the high intensity that they can produce, the maximum wattage that they can produce, and how they can endure that over 30 seconds and then have the ability to repeat that. So again, if somebody is quite endurance based, they'll not produce a lot of power, but the curve is quite flat. If they are balanced, they'll be able to have a, a steady descent compared to the average. An explosive athlete that can produce high amounts of force, but unable to maintain that. And also they'll probably spike in muscular acidosis. And then we have the 30-15 test, which really challenges our athletes to perform at high intensities. And we use heart rate there to really determine how they respond. We've got three different tests here. We can determine what an athlete needs to work on. So if an athlete gets past their lactate threshold and they spike in muscular acidosis, 
They probably need to work on peripheral adaptations and muscle buffering adaptations as well to be able to produce lactate, tolerate lactate, but also be able to control it as well. Whereas if their lactate profile was quite steady, but then their heart rates were quite high, then they need to work on central adaptations. We can see similar results in 3015 tests if their heart rate's really high, but then they can't get to them high speeds, they need to work on central adaptations. 30 second max out sprints, that really focuses on an athlete's ability to produce high amounts of force and speed and being able to endure that over 30 seconds. And this really highlights whether they need peripheral adaptations or muscle buffering adaptations. The range of different tests, and if you're interested in this, you can come down to the Boxing Science Performance Centre and book yourself in a test. But if you don't have access to this and you can't get down to the Boxing Science Performance Centre, you can do it just through a conversation with an athlete. So if an athlete says that they struggle to go through the gears, they struggle working in bursts, they probably need to work on their muscle buffering capacity and peripheral adaptations. If an athlete is quite active and their fighting style is long and steady and high punch volumes but they're constantly working, that's more kind of muscle buffering or central adaptations. Don't really say that an athlete just needs to go on one or the other, they need a range of it, but they do need to prioritize different areas. For example, Fabio Wardley, heavyweight athlete, he has large amounts of muscle, so he needs to work predominantly on peripheral adaptations and also work on muscle buffering capacity. Whereas like a lighter athlete that will throw more punches in a fight and have a more consistent workload, more need to work on central adaptations. So it's not like a truly black and white answer. That's why we do the testing at the Boxing Science Performance Centre to highlight individual responses to increase high intensities. But we also have them important conversations with an athlete as well to really get a true understanding of what's limiting their boxing potential through their physical capabilities. And we'll provide a plan to not totally change them as an athlete because we want them to make their strength in super strengths, but also to be able to unlock their physical potential to unlock their boxing ability. So question from Avraz Jamal2963. I have heavy bags, jump rope and dumbbells, three kilos. My question is how to get a session training at home. So a range of different things. So we've already answered a question about a workout with no equipment in the gym. So doing shadow boxing, working on your footwork. You can do this in terms of like warm up and extending your workout a little bit. Heavy bags, range of different stuff that you can do there. Bag interval training paired with like body weight exercises. So you can be doing like power shots for 30 seconds and then doing burpees for 30 seconds or running on the spot for 30 seconds. Physical exercise paired with the technical exercise to help stimulate increases in heart rate. So then you're getting them red zone adaptations at home. Jump rope, you know, doing the skipping rope, range of different things that you can do there. You can put it into your warm up, you can do it in your cool down to burn some calories, but also you can do this as an interval as well. So you can do interval training such as like 20 seconds on, 10 seconds off. So 20 seconds really intense with 10 seconds going at low intensity. This will help stimulate them increases in heart rate. And then with three kilo dumbbells, you can do some loaded jumps, uh, repeated counter movement jumps. You can do some posterior shoulder work. You can do some body weight press-ups. The range of different things that you can do. Body weight, 
but also with the three kilo dumbbells as well. Range of different things you can do if you want to get in touch and ask for a workout, send me an email, dannywilson at boxingscience.co.uk or drop a comment in the comment box below. So Jeannie has asked, if you had to prescribe just five exercises other than running and sprints for an amateur boxer, what would they be? Just mentioned a little bit earlier in the podcast about the amateur boxing SNC program that we've just recently released. And in these workouts, we've looked to do five different kinds of exercises in terms of our strength training. We've got four strength pillars and then we've got our core training as well. So we've got unilateral lower body. The reason why is because you can't really load up the lower body significantly through body weight exercises to increase that strength and that rate of force development. So we adapt the squat into some single leg work, whether that's a, a split squat with ISO hold, whether that's jumping lunges, it all progresses during this amateur boxing SNC program. We then have bridge exercises. So normally we do hinge exercises such as like a banded hip thrust, isometric hip thrust or a trap bar deadlift. However, in amateur boxing, we've got limited time and facilities. So we do body weight exercises and we'll do some bridge exercises to target the posterior chain. With our pressing exercises, we look to do body weight pressing. So we do a press up, different press up variations, a strict press up, a press up with pause, then also a press up with an alternate shoulder touch. And then our pulling exercises, because if amateur boxing gym hasn't got access to like a pull-up bar, we'd do something like posterior shoulder work. So something like prone swimmers or prone TYWs. This is giving our strength programs balance. So we're working on the key areas to improve physical performance and also keep our athletes injury free. And then we're looking at core exercises. So Core exercises are actually split up into four different exercises for anti-lateral flexion, anti-extension, anti-rotation, and hip flexion with neutral spine. The main thing that I'd work on if I could only choose one would be anti-rotation. As we've seen in our recent testing, that rotational strength and rate of force development is a huge contributor towards the punching action. So doing something like an isometric pull-off press against a wall would be the preferred option here. The range of different things, but I won't try and limit myself to five exercises. If you've got time, do these strength pillars and do some core exercises. This should only take about 10, 15 minutes. And also you've got your plyometrics and your warm-up exercises, such as the movement and mobility drills, improve rotational strength and stability and mobility. If you're interested in this, go and check out the Amateur Boxing SNC program. Link is in description where this can not just limit you to just five exercises, but help you integrate these methods into a very time efficient program that can be integrated into any amateur boxing gym. Good question, another one on amateur boxing by PL Boxio. How to train for amateur bout on short notice. So how to program exercises, loads and all of that and what should be the main focus leading up towards the bout. I had this question quite a lot at Boxing Science. I think all you need to do is try and reduce that load by around about 20% just before about. So to make sure that you're not overtraining, not try and increase the load because you've got a amateur bout just coming up uh, on short notice, you should be staying in shape throughout the season, staying on a certain kind of exercise routine to make sure that you're promoting the same physiological adaptation. And then as you taper towards about, look to try and keep these exercises in place and then just reduce the load by 20%. So this is on the Amateur Boxing SNC program. Like I said before, the link's in the description for that. You have to look at like a tapering week. 
So looking to do some boxing specific actions, whether that's the banded shadow box or the punch ISO holds to get our boxers fired up, ready for competition. It's a lot of guidance, like I said, in the amateur boxing SNC program, showing you how to program over a season, but also to be ready for them unexpected call-ups because in amateur boxing, we know that we can get about on two weeks, one week, or maybe even like a one day notice. So it's really important to stick to the program not be too flowing in terms of like tapering for every single bout, but to make sure that you react in the right way to still promote physical adaptations throughout a boxing season. Question from Don Diego, 8964. Jump exercises without any variation of box jump. At Boxing Science, we use the box jump quite a lot increase that demand for the jump height to encourage our athletes to put maximal speed and intent, but also to reduce the landing forces on impact. We don't use the box jumps all the time because you can be quite limited in that hip extension forces because we're looking to try and tuck straight away. So we predominantly do our jump exercises not using box jumps. So we do a counter movement jump, repeated counter movement jump, maybe like a falling counter movement jump from a box, but you can do this from bench or from the side of the ring. We do banded counter movement jumps, dumbbell counter movement jumps, range different plyometrics to help improve lower body explosiveness that don't necessarily need a box. So I've got a question from Big Chester 777 who's asked, muscle buffering, heart rate zone level. Fantastic question because muscle buffering requires you to be at a lactate level of between 10 and 12 millimol per litre. Sometimes an athlete needs to go up towards 14 millimol per litre. And we've got a very expensive piece of kit, the Biosen, that can able to extract lactate from the blood to be able to analyse this and give feedback to the coaches and to the athletes and being able to manipulate the intensity to optimise muscle buffering adaptations. However, we know that most people don't have access to this. So you can either access the Lactate Pro, which is a portable device, but it's still relatively expensive, £400. And then you can use consumables, which are expensive as well. So heart rate and RPE is the best indicator for muscle buffering sessions. RPE needs to be around about 8 out of 10. If it's a 9 or a 10 out of 10, that's showing that the lactate levels are possibly too high. Heart rate needs to be anywhere between 85 and 90% maximum heart rate. doesn't need to be over 90%. As soon as it's over 90%, it might be pushing that a little bit too far. But this depends on different athletes, depending on what their muscle buffering ability is, what their central adaptations are like. So it does depend on the athlete. But a general rule of thumb, anywhere between 85 and 90%. But I would be more incline to use the RPE scale. So try and get about eight out of 10 out of your athletes when doing muscle buffering protocols. So the final question is from Scuff1231. What's the best fitness testing and how would you calculate the necessary loads for SNC sessions from this testing? And ages schoolboy, junior, youth and open. So not necessarily SNC loads. We'd probably do that if we're doing a load velocity profile. We can be able to calculate loads just for trap bar, deadlift, potentially like doing it at bench press, but we don't really calculate the loads from anything from our testing. More look at different exercises that they should be using. So for example, if an athlete has a low counter movement jump compared to the squat jump, 
They need to work on their eccentric utilization. So doing stuff like counter movement jumps, falling counter movement jumps, doing altitude landings as well to improve that eccentric utilization, then improve their stretch shortening cycle. And then like, for example, if we do the rotational tests, we'll look at their maximum force outputs, but also look at their rate of force development. So how quickly that they can rotate. If they have good high forces, but lacking rate of force development, we then look to do like faster rotational exercises. So whether that's like a fast pull-off press, a heavy pull-off press, or like a range of med ball exercises, such as like the split stands, rotational throws, kneeling rotational throws to work on that rotational speed. So this is where we use the testing battery and the testing results to give you a bespoke and individualized program more to do with the exercises rather than prescription of loads on your key lifts. In terms of like ages for schoolboy, junior, youth and open, it's very hard to answer that in all in one podcast. But if you check out the Train Life Champion membership, which is just £19.99 a month, you get access to the Train Life Champion program where you've got the testing results there that will give you like some indication on juniors, male seniors, and also female athletes as well. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the Boxing Science Podcast. Thank you very much for watching and listening. If not a subscriber yet, hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out on any future content. And big shout out to those that have sent in those questions to create these episodes and you know get some thought-provoking answers from myself. And hopefully it's helped you understand more about the Boxing Science training methods to then integrate into your training environment. Wanting to find out more about Boxing Science, check out the Boxing Science website, boxingscience.co.uk, and check out our online store, where we're offering 50% discount on your first purchase by using the code BOXINGSCIENCE50. We've got a range of different eBooks here on strength, on speed and power, on fitness, and also on nutrition as well. And then if you are wanting to follow the Blueprint to Elite Performance, our Train Like Champion membership is perfect for you. It's £19.99 a month, where you get access to our strength, movement, fitness, and nutrition protocols. Like I said, just for £19.99 a month. Thank you very much for watching. Hopefully see you on the next episode of the Boxing Science Podcast.